Now, in just a moment, we're going to be looking at Judges 20, and we're going to see this continuation of this story of the Levite and the concubine and the men of Gibeah. Uh, we're going to be there, Lord willing, in just a moment. Uh, though uh, I was told that when I was away uh, on the night that Brad was teaching that, that you all were in 1830, I guess it was last Wednesday night, and 1830, and we wanted to comment on this. I was asked to comment on this uh, as that account of chapter 17 and 18 is ending. The text says, The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, this is what the New American Standard reads, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. And so the question is, is this Jonathan the son of Gershom the son of Manasseh? Or is this Jonathan the son of Gershom the son of Moses? Moses. Now, what I put up here was the way the Hebrew text looks in And I've got a copy of that, too, if you want to see it later and want me to point it out to you. But here, uh, these consonants, Mem, Sheen, and Hey, these consonants, that is Moses' name in Hebrew, Moshe. Uh, Moshe, by the way, some Jewish people today, if they wear the name Moshe, it's, it's Moses, basically. But... Uh, this is these are the words of the context. They have the letter noon raised, and it's not in the place of the other letters. If you look at this later, and I've got this with me, and I'll show it to you again if you want to see it, you will see this very clearly, very obviously in the text that this is just doesn't belong. This was just kind of squeezed in there. And so it does seem that this is a reference to Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. That the noon was added because it was considered such a shame for Moses and his family to be associated with this kind of horrible idolatry that uh, some of the scribes found it difficult to, to even write that. So they, they include this in. Now also, if you put that in, if you have that he was the son of Manasseh, that also makes a connection between the Manasseh later who's king of Judah in 2 Kings 21 who is more responsible than any one person for the people going into Babylonian captivity. So you did a couple of things. You distanced him from Moses, who was the great leader of the nation, and you associated him with the later Manasseh, who was to lead the people in idolatry. The Hebrew manuscripts most read as this, um, 
you find this you find ancient sources like the Septuagint and the Vulgate taking sometimes different routes. The Vulgate says Moses, the Targums, which were Aramaic paraphrases of the text, have Manasseh. But I think it's reasonable that Moses is is who's intended. Now I think that shows us this shows us some striking things, that passage in Judges 18 verse 30. First of all, it shows us how quickly this noble family was corrupted. Um, there are ca- cases in history of people whose grandchildren and great-grandchildren undo many of the good things that the grandparents did. Or sometimes vice versa. Sometimes they undo the evil things their parents have done. And But here it's more frequently running from from the stories from the good to the bad. And here is Moses to, to this Levite who's been mentioned throughout this text and his name is withheld for shock value at the very end and it is Moses. And it shows and remember too that in the book of Leviticus through Deuteronomy the priests were be from the line of Aaron not from the line of Moses. But here you have a priest from the line of Moses. But, but all of this is the reason the people ended up in captivity to begin with. And it says they served as priests for the tribe of Dan until they were carried into captivity. It's, it's foolishness like this and idolatry like this that ultimately will lead, uh, lead to bringing the people in captivity. If you do want to just look at that Hebrew text, because I think that you'll all see the point that that I'm making, how this is set off just in different fashion and how uh, it will probably cement the idea that, that Moses is the subject of discussion. To review what we went over Sunday, even though it was quite painful, but to review it, remember that the Levite goes to get his concubine who has been away from him for four months in her father's house. As he goes back to get her, the father-in-law shows great hospitality to the Levite. But he feels determined to go on the fifth day. As they leave, uh, they, the servant wants to stop in Jebesh, the city of Jerusalem. But it's controlled by foreigners at the time. And he says, we're not going to stop in a foreign city. We're going to go to Gibeah. We're going to go to Ramah. So they stop at Gibeah. They sit down in the town square. No one takes them in. Until an old man from the hill country of Ephraim comes. And he, he invites them into his house. As they are eating in his house, the men of the city gather around the city. And they pound on the door of his house and bring that man out that we may know him, that we may have sexual relations with him. The old man protests. He says, no, don't do this to this man. Uh, Do it to my virgin daughter or to uh, his concubine. And again, I don't think he should have said that, but, but he does. And the Levite, I take it, takes the concubine, pushes her out 
to the people. They rape her all night long and kill her. And as the chapter ended, he goes home, he takes his concubine, cuts her in 12 pieces, and sends one piece to every tribe. Now, I take it that as he sent this out, there was some kind of an explanation. And all the people gather as we open in chapter 20, and they just say, what happened here? What happened? Uh, but let's, let's see this. In ver- chapter 20, verse 1, all the sons of Israel from Dan, far north, to Beersheba, the far south, including the land of Gilead. This is the land on the other side of the Jordan. So all the land from north to south and all the land even across the Jordan. All of them, verse 1, came out and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. Now notice how often it's going to say in these first 11 verses that they assembled as one man or they were united as one man. In verse 2, the chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah and the sons of Israel said, tell us, how did this wickedness take place? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of the concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance. And they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel give your advice and counsel here. Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men out of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand to supply food for the people that when we come to give Gibeah of Benjamin, they may punish, we may punish, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts which they have committed in Israel. Thus all is, the men of Israel were gathered against the people, united as one man. So, you find this phrase, as one man, used as one man, used in verse 1, in verse 8, in verse 11. So a lot of the text is going to emphasize that they are united in this process. We've already shown you that they dealt with from north to south and from the far Um, eastern parts of the land. Everybody is gathered at Mizpah because they are concerned for this great evil that has been done. And this act that has been done, this sin which has been committed, uh, is described it is described in 20 and verse 3 as evil. It is connected 
to the word that was used uh, back in chapter 19, verse 23. And it also, this same root word in 20 and verse 13 will be used there. So this act that has been done, the rape and murder of this concubine is described as evil. It's described as evil. It is described in verse 10, verse 10 as being lewd, or verse 6 I should say. In verse 10 we'll use part of this, but verse 6 calls this lewd and disgraceful. And verse 10 will repeat that word disgraceful. Now this term was used back in 19 verse 23 and 24 and there it was translated act of folly. This was evil. This was folly at its height. It is the ultimate foolishness to rape and murder this woman. Uh, it, it is just, it is a great, great evil that has been committed. And I, I guess in our age of such evil and their age of such evil, it's glad to see, it's good to see people united and saying, this is wrong, this is evil, this is disgraceful, and we're not going to let this go on. We're not going to let it go on. And um, what do you see in this text that strikes you as a little different than what we read in 19. Andrew? He says that they tried to kill me okay. as opposed to ravish him. Okay. Um, I think, yes, I, you're right. There it just talked about bringing him up to have sexual relations with him. Of course, in the long run, that may have been the result. But you're really, really close to what I was getting at. Uh, what else does he say? What else does he say? And, and, and you are correct in what you say, Andrew, but he may have just concluded that's the end result. Um, in, in the story, he offered her up, and here he just states what they did. Yeah, yeah he doesn't state, being the great man that I am, I pushed my concubine out to the crowd. Doesn't say that. 1925, that's what he did. But here, when these people don't know the details of the story, though we as the readers do, he says, they intended to kill me, as Andrew pointed out, but instead they ravished my concubines. Yeah, he doesn't even mention the fact, hey, I pushed her out to the crowd. You know, she just happened to die. She happened to be raped and died, but you know, I pushed her out. Doesn't often often do we kind of leave out conveniently the bad things we've done when we tell a story. Um, and it happens here too. So he omits the, the, the part of the story that really makes him look bad. Any thoughts right there on those verses? 
Okay? Now, verses 12 through 18, the tribes ask, Benjamin, give these people up that we may punish them that they may die. And Benjamin won't do it. In verse 12, the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the entire tribe of Benjamin saying, what is this wickedness that has taken place? I put verse 13 over here. That is verse 12. What is this wickedness that has taken place? Well, verse 13 has wickedness as well. Okay. Maybe they should both be there, David. I don't know. Let's see. I don't know but, if to say a word or not. Okay, yes. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, thank you for that point. But what is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that they may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. Okay? Um, The text tells us that this wickedness, this awful crime... um, Okay, verse 12 is the same word. Verse 13. Verse 13. Yes, it is the same word too. So let's add them both up here. Verse 13, verse 12, the word wickedness. I want us to notice it also calls in verse 13, what's his description of the men who committed this act? They are called worthless fellows. And that is the same description that is given of them back in chapter 19 and verse 22. All the worthless men of the city gather round and pound on the door of the city and say, bring these men out that we may know them. And but see, deliver this worth this worthless men that we may put them to death and remove wickedness from their midst. When wickedness like this happens, the only way that it can be appropriately dealt with is to remove those who committed it. Uh, remove the wickedness from from us. But the Bible says the sons of Benjamin, it says that Benjamin would not listen. Do you remember when this old man pleaded with the people in chapter 19, don't do this wickedness with these men who come under my roof. Here's my virgin daughter. Here's his concubine. Do to them whatever's good in your sight. But do not do it to this man. And they would not listen. In 1925, the same three key words, would not listen, that are used in 1925 are repeated here. The men of Gibeah would not listen to this appeal to turn from their wickedness, nor would the tribe of Benjamin as a whole turn from their wickedness. They wouldn't turn from their wickedness. 
And so the men of Benjamin, knowing what these people have done, that they have raped this concubine and they have murdered this concubine, refuse to hand him, them over, refuse to hand the guilty over for punishment, but instead they prepare for battle. When, when I hear stories of somebody that's on the run who's committed murder and, and they may be hiding out with family, I'm thinking, who in the world is going to protect them or conceal them when they have done something this horrible and atrocious? Who's going to do it? They did it right here. A whole tribe is busy defending these guilty people. It's unthinkable. In verse 14, the sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. Sons of Israel gathered united as one man. In a way, so does Benjamin. Doesn't use that phrase as one man, but they gather out for battle. And in verse 15, from the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left handed. Each could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, besides Benjamin, were numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. Now the sons of Israel inquired, uh, excuse me, they arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God and said, Who shall go up first for us in the battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So Benjamin, 26,000 men, uh, 26,000 men, is it plus these 700 troops? Are the 700 included among the 26,000? You will find if you really pay close attention to the numbers in uh, Judges uh, 20, it's hard to work out all the details. Hard to work out exactly how many people were killed. But we find at the end of the story and in the next chapter, there were only 600 of the people left. But the, Benjamin was noted for its left-handed warriors. Benjamin means son of my right hand. So it's ironic that Benjamin's noted for left-handed warriors. But, but they are. And who in this book have we seen that's left-handed from Benjamin, who was, who kind of was the beginning of this line? Ehud. Ehud in Judges 3 and in verse uh, 15. There's a reference to this in the days of Saul and David in 1 Chronicles 12.2. It talks about how some in the tribe of Benjamin could use their right or left hand. Um, very equally well, right hand or, or left hand. But uh, the text tells us they could sling a stone, verse, verse 16, could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good shot. You know, in the Old West, you may have shown yourself by how good of a shot you were with a gun. Uh, in Israel, it was a slingshot. And Benjamin had some expert warriors. 
Now, I want to point out to you something about this word miss here in verse 16. It's very interesting. You know, that is the word sin in Hebrew. They could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And sometimes you've heard sin defined as missing the mark. That's a true definition. I think that that definition itself may, if we stop there, it might underestimate how horrible and disastrous sin is. Sin is slapping in the face a perfectly good God and rejecting Him. But it is missing the mark. It is missing the mark. It is that. And here's a good passage to define this. They could sling a, a, a stone at a hair and not miss. Not sin. Not, but, but, but it has the idea of missing the mark. But with Benjamin's soldiers on one side, then you have Israel with 400,000. It seems like defeat's inevitable. But Benjamin, Benjamin will foolishly go on with this battle. And the text tells us they inquire of the Lord. Israel inquires of the Lord. Israel, Benjamin. And by the way, the tribe of Benjamin is mentioned about 150 times or so in the Old Testament. And 29 of those are right here in this chapter. So about a fifth of all the references to the tribe of Benjamin are in this chapter. This would be a horrible thing to be remembered for. But this is a lot of their legacy in the land of Israel. This is a lot of their legacy. And But the other tribes inquire of God and they say, Who will go up first? And the Lord says, Judah. Now, Lord willing, if we get time, we want to come back to that. Right now, if you have a question or comment... Anything to this point? Nothing. Okay. Scene is set. The battle begins. Verse 19. Verse 19. The sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped at Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them. And the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground on that day 22,000 men to Israel. So in the first battle, Israel loses 22,000 men. They inquired of God. God told them to go up. But they lose 22,000. They lose almost a number equal to the whole army of Benjamin. Now, I want you to look at verses 22 and 23 really closely. And does something sound strange here? Something sounds strange. Verse 22, after they lose 22,000 people, the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place 
where they had arrayed themselves the first day, the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near for the battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So first in verse 22, they're encouraging each other. And then in verse 23, they are weeping and inquiring of the Lord and said, Shall we go up? Chronologically, doesn't it seem like the order of those verse 22 and 23 are, are reversed? Chronologically, verse 23, after they lose the 22,000, they weep, they inquire of God, they say, shall we go up? Then God says, go up. And they go up encouraging each other to prepare for the battle. Chronologically, I think that that would be the order that that happened. But it was interesting to me that that seems to be the order of the Hebrew manuscripts they found. It seems to be the order of the various translations. Maybe, maybe biblical writers had more in mind when they're telling the story than chronology. Okay? I know I like to have a chronological sequence. That's why when I like to hear when I like to hear a you know, when I hear some you know, crime has taken place, okay, what's the date of the crime? What's the date? Where where they find things at along the way. But the Bible often has other interests besides that. But I want you to notice something here. In verse 23, I would encourage you, if you do want this, to write it down because this shall not be up forever. Okay. Um, but here in 20, verse 23, they wept after they lost these 22,000 people in battle. They wept. Now, we have seen in the book Samson's wife weeping in chapter 14. We have seen Jephthah's daughter and her companions weeping. But this is the first time we have found all Israel weeping since 2-4. And, and I want to play into I want to come back to that later. Okay, as well. Lord willing. We want to come back to that. If I don't, remind me. Now, the second day of battle, the Bible says they go up in verses 24 and 25. This time, they lose 18,000 men. And in verse 26, all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. And thus they remained before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, first, after the first day of battle, they wept. Here, after this battle, in 2026, they weep, then they fast as well. Is the only reference to fasting, I believe, in the book of Judges. And you can see it, I missed something, but it's the only reference. They weep, they fast, and they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. 
Burnt offerings and peace offerings are offered here as well. So, here their weeping and the activities associated with that are more intense in this case. They're more intense. Now, in verse, verse 27, the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord... For the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? Or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver him into your hand. There, is, there are also several references throughout this section to the fact that, that the tribes, the other tribes, and Benjamin are brothers. You see references to that in 20 verse 13, in 20 verse 23, in 20 verse 28. This war is associating, they are fighting their own brothers. But the Bible tells us that first of all, the Ark of the Covenant is with Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, apparently the Ark of the Covenant is used to inquire of God. The only other place you see this besides here in Judges 20, 27 is 1 Samuel 14 verses 18 and 19. In the days of Saul, one of the priests was using the ark to inquire of God. He was afraid he would lose his advantage over the Philistines. And he says, withdraw your hand. Withdraw your hand. So the ark of God was somehow used in this inquiring of God. But the high priest at this time is Phinehas. Now, what do you remember about this man? What has he done? Anything you can remember? Andrew? Wasn't he the one that started killing people first or drawing the army up? Um, he, he was the first to act when they called for someone to go to battle. Okay. What he does, we may be referring to the same incident here, Andrew. Remember when there were Israelite men who committed adultery with Midianite and Moabite women. And you see in Numbers 25 and verse 11, there is an Israelite man who takes a woman into his tent and everybody knows what's going on, that they're committing adultery. The other people are weeping. He grabs a sword. He kills them in the act of their adultery. Numbers 21, 25 and verse 11. Then in Numbers 31 and verse 6, when they went to war against Midian, he is involved in that conflict as well. And so the, they're going to war against Midian because of this. So his role in that conflict is mentioned uh, a couple of times. And also, you remember when you have, when these tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, when they were leaving and they were they finished their battles and they were going back home and they built a large altar before the Jordan River and the other tribes prepare, they send a man from each tribe and they come and confront these tribes and they say, why did you build this altar? Are you building this altar to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings? The leader of that particular, the spokesman for that particular group 
was Phinehas in Joshua 22, beginning with verse 13. And so, this Phinehas seems to have had a real concern for God's holiness and it being honored. But you know what that tells you chronologically? This is fairly early in the period of the Judges. Yeah, this is fairly early in the period of the Judges. Because Phinehas was alive and active in the wilderness period. And so this event, even though it's placed at the end of the book of Judges to emphasize this theme that there was no king in Israel and everybody did what's right in his own eyes, chronologically, it appears at the beginning. What we said about verses 22 and 23 is also true of the entire book. The book is not always in chronological sequence. It's very hard to make much of this person coming before that person unless the text specifically says it in the book of Judges. Now, when they inquire of God this time, God says something here that he hadn't said before. What is that, Paul? Are you shaking your head? I will deliver them in your Yeah, in verse 28, go up for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So he specifically says, I'm going to give victory. 2028. 20, and then in verse 35, the Bible will say in verse 35, the Lord struck Benjamin before them. So it is the Lord who is giving victory in this battle. So we've seen the first day of battle. Israel, which seemingly has truth and right on its side, they have inquired of God, and God said, go to battle. They lose 22,000 men. They weep. The second day, they lose 18,000 men. This time they weep. They fast. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. They inquire of God. This time God says, go up, and I'm going to give them into your hand. This time they go up and they array themselves against the people of Benjamin. And the people of Benjamin seem like they're defeating them. And they chase them away. And they, they, they leave the city in pursuit of these people from Israel. But what they don't know is that Israel has set some people in ambush. And as they have drawn away the fighting men, drawn away the warriors from Benjamin, these men in ambush enter the cities of Benjamin. They enter their cities and they begin to destroy the people uh, that are behind and they, they uh, set the city on fire. And the men of Benjamin, they see the smoke of the city going up and those that they have been chasing, those that have been chasing turn around and begin chasing them. And those who set the city on fire come out of the city and they begin chasing them. And they recognize they are trapped. They are caught between, they are caught between two portions of this Israelite army. The Bible says 
They do not realize... Look at verse 34. When the 10,000 men from all Israel came against Gibeah, the battle became fierce, but Benjamin did not know that disaster was close to them. That is also used in verse 41. The men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were terrified and they did not see for they for they saw that they were terrified for they saw that disaster was close to them. This is the point I want to make. The word translated disaster in these passages was our same word translated wickedness in verse 3, in verse 12, in verse 13. This describes both the sin and here it describes the consequences of their sin. Now, as I told that story... It sure did sound like we've heard that before. Where have we heard anything like that before? That Israel pretends to be defeated. They run. A group of people come after them. And then men in ambush arise and fight against the city and set the city on fire and come out and trap their forces. David? That was AI. Okay. The second time. The first time didn't go well. Okay, first time they were defeated. Yes. Initial defeat and then final victory. Yeah. Just happen, it happens here, doesn't it? Happens here. And so let's look at some similarities between Joshua 7 and 8. Joshua 7 and 8 and Judges 20. The battle at Ai in Joshua 7 8. And then here the battle against Benjamin in Judges 20. And boys and girls, this will be on the test. Okay? So in both cases. As David said, both cases, there is an initial defeat. There's an initial defeat in Joshua 7, 1 through 5, in Judges 20, verses 19 through 28. Now, I may not always put Joshua and Judges, but if something's from chapter 7 and 8, you know it's Joshua and Judges. If something's from 20, you know it's Judges, okay? Then, both cases, they, the second, the second time or the third time, they prepare ambushes. They prepare ambushes to attack the people. Then, they feign defeat they feign defeat then the enemy pursues 
see the enemy pursuing in 8, 16, and 17, and 20, verse 31, the ambush, the people in ambush arise and burn the city. You see that in 8, verse 19, in 20, verses 33 through 38, you see the they see the smoke. The enemy then sees the smoke and they flee. And by the way, both times when they see the smoke arising, whether it's I or whether it's the city of Benjamin, both cases it reminds us a little bit of Sodom. You see that in 8, 22, and 23. You see that in chapter uh, twenty. Verses 39 through 42. And in both cases, the Lord gives the victory. You see that in Joshua 8, in verse 1, verse 7, verse 18. You see it in Judges 20 in the passages we mentioned, verse 28, verse 35. Now, there may be other points of connection or correspondence, but there's at least seven right there. But you know what's really amazing? Here, this is against the Canaanites. Here, this is against Israelites. As one commentator has said, we have seen the enemy and it is Israel. They employ the same methods on the, Canaan, on the Israelites that they had to employ to defeat the Canaanites. Now, let's go back to a couple of other things we said we'd bring back up. They inquire of the Lord and they say, who will go up first for us? And the answer is Judah will go up. That is the same way the book opened in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, they were going to fight the Canaanites. Now they're going to fight their old brothers. So again, Israel has become their own worst enemy. They are doing foolishly evil, recklessly, and because of this, they have to go up to fight each other. We said before that the, the text says the people wept. And I stated that that's the first time the people as a whole have left in since chapter 2 verse 4. Did you know what the context was in 2 verse 4? The people wept because the Lord says, the Lord says, I'm not going to drive out the Israel lot. I'm not going to drive out the Canaanites before you anymore. I'm not going to drive out the Canaanites before you. So they're weeping. Because God says, I'm not going to drive out the Canaanites. Now they're weeping because God's not driving out the tribe of Benjamin fast enough. Wow. All these things that are connected to the battle against the Canaanites and conquering the land, which they never completely did. Look at the danger it causes. 
sometimes when you disobey the instruction to totally exterminate Canaanite, it may set up all kinds of problems in the future that you never imagined. And that may be the situation right here. But what else do you all see? What else do you have questions about right there? Anything? If Jericho was in Benjamin, in the tribe of Benjamin, I mean, what is it in their territory? I mean, my map shows that, and I'm not quite sure where AI was, but I thought it was kind of interesting that the very tactic that was used in their country mm-hmm. to gain them would be the same tactic I, used against them. That's a good. That's a good point. And I do not remember offhand. Benjamin's territory is mentioned in Joshua 19. And, uh, and well, no, it's, excuse me, Joshua 18. Joshua 18. And um, does it say where Jericho is? Yeah. Okay. Oh, in the Benjamin, it's, yeah, the map, it does look like that territory. And, uh, and, and I. I'll try to look that up. Don't give me other questions to look up, which means I don't know them at the time you ask them, so I have to look them up. What else? Anything else? Lord willing, we'll finish this sordid story in Judges 21 on um, Sunday, and it doesn't really get any better. and uh, we, they take a bad situation and make it worse. And we'll see that, Lord willing. Thank you. God bless.